how does the machine then respond to you without you having to do any inputs? And so that's, I think, is going to be the biggest challenge moving forward of how do we take these, these tiny little things that make a whole difference in that vehicle experience. What will the police do in this situation? How the police will be enhanced? How they will change their procedures? What will they have to do if there will be a country with, let's say, 60-65% of cars being autonomous? Hello and welcome to Shine, a podcast by Star. My name is Tom Hunt, your host, and in today's episode, I'm going to ask the question, how is in-car connectivity, autonomous driving, and electrification shaping the future of human-machine interface design and in-car experience? And to learn more about how in-car connectivity, autonomous driving, and electrification are shaping the future of the human machine interface design then simply send an email to automotive at star.global that's automotive at star.global and we will send you our proprietary research report on the topic and to illuminate this topic we're joined by our very own roth gray who's a design leader in the automotive and mobility area of star and then also dennis dobre who is a design lead at auto live now this episode is a pretty special one in my opinion i had to say very few words because ross and dennis really took the i would say initiative in this episode and got right into things right from the start so we initially cover blue sky thinking what's going to happen in the future what are all the great innovations that will occur but then we dig more into the potential risks that can occur when we have these very high technology advanced automotive machines driving us around. So let's jump right into that now. And the first voice you'll hear will be that of Ross. I'm the lead automotive and mobility designer here at Star with a focus mainly on North America, but also an assistance to many of our other studios globally. I started my career off actually in automotive interior exterior design, doing the more industrial design side of things. And I got introduced organically within the industry, working for a few suppliers, first being Delphi Automotive and first really working in how we showcase a lot of the tech that they were designing. And the requirement was there is that, you know, we had to get into more of the design of the actual interfacing. And that's how that was my introduction into more of the iterative design process, as well as the digital medium. And from there, my career really t- took off in the direction of both very physical artifacts and digital ecosystems and how do we kind of combine those two worlds together. And everywhere I've gone, I spent about three and a half years in automotive design, longest stint being with Ford Motor Company, uh, working on their sync systems and future uh, special projects, as well as end up leaving automotive and going into a much smaller environment of wearable technology, the uh, fossil group on developing more of kind of that IoT world. Very similar, shrunk into a smaller environment and then left industrial design for a while and went into purely digital for about the other half of my career. And then full circle of come back to Star and it was a great introduction into the automotive world. Again, as having this kind of very large breadth of 
where we've gone and where we're headed now. So it's great to be here. Dennis here. I work in automotive industry for like seven years. My entire career was, it happens in around automotive industry. Of course, I got some projects before this in some other industries, one on the web related app and so on. But now the relevant experience is in, in the automotive field. I'm currently working as a design lead for Autolive company. Regarding the topics we are going to discuss today, actually, I started my career working for another supplier for Continental in the department, which was called IDHMI, which was Interior Instrumentation Driving Human Machine Interface. We worked on multiple products such as instrument clusters, secondary displays, FPKs, HUDs, stuff like that. And I worked for various customers, various countries and various customer uh, centers. And then I moved to Hela as a technical product leader for battery management systems for EV vehicles. And I also worked for a few weeks as a resident engineer on the customer side. So I saw how they are doing things there in one of their locations. It was really cool. And now I'm working on the passive safety and active safety products. So I'm, I was somehow involved in most of the topics we will discuss today. So looking forward, digging a bit into them. And thank you for the invitation also. No worries. So I want to start off quite high level, like blue sky, to try and understand what are the current exciting leaps that are being made in the world of human machine interfaces and the world of in-car connectivity. I will go to you first, if that's okay, Ross. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that we, we should first look at is how the landscape is expanding right now from more of a numbers point of view. In 2021, HMI was roughly at a worth of $24 billion. And by 2030, we're expected to see a rough estimate of about $64.5 billion in, in growth. And just that alone is something that's pretty unprecedented when it comes to a certain category within automotive. And so with inside that is, is partly due to an initiative called CASE. That stands for connectivity, autonomous, sharing, and subscription, and then electrifying the vehicle. Kind of go through those deltas, and that's kind of where a lot of these different areas are, are starting, to, starting to come out. So what you're first seeing from a high level is next-generation cockpit design. So that's immersive, a more immersive dashboard and seamless feel. That is everything from kind of removing a lot of the brakes where you see products because traditionally cars are very much made up of multiple products. And then you can see a lot of different cut lines in the vehicle at to making the connection from the physical to the digital has been tough. And so philosophically, what's happening is we're trying to make a very seamless integration between that physical and digital. And that digital is kind of taking over that landscape. And with inside that, there's features such as more intelligent assistance and co-pilots. Star worked on a project uh, with Neo where we, we did develop the, the first in-car AI product, which is more kind of the emotional assistant bot. But that's just kind of scraping the surface and it goes a lot further, a lot deeper. And in other areas is like you've got gamification and entertainment. We talked about how, you know, your car can go from being seeing just like traffic to making it feel as if you're traveling through a forest or the Sahara versus sitting on in 
traffic outside Heathrow Airport, essentially. And then a much smarter area of like charging and EV and route planning. And the route planning is not just only just for charging. It's also going into that more kind of other area of traditional automotive design. So the push for a very digital environment has pushed a deeper connection of that user going from point A to point B and what happens in that more seamless and more tailored experience for each user and driver. So that's kind of high level. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any thoughts on from your end, Dennis? Um, I know primarily I've worked a lot in the United States, but a lot of these landscapes are very different globally. Well, (laughs) in Texas, I live in Dallas. So Dallas and Houston are both super mega sprawling cities. So instead of building within a constraint, they just keep spreading out, which elongates your commute and your travel versus living in like, say, ultra-dense New York City or ultra-dense Hong Kong. So it's kind of looking at, you know, we got to accommodate so many different uh, environments. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was first working for different customers where they were let's say, struggling to develop some really, really old style mechanical pointers, instrument clusters, for example, or some secondary displays without any haptic feedback or some huge delays in receiving and executing the commands. And we were trying to find the best solutions. And all of a sudden, we got a lot of information about projects that would come regarding the FPKs or how they are called like in the popular manner, like digital clusters, where we were facing different issues like, okay, what should the cluster contain? What would be the limitations? How we should develop it in order not to distract the driver, you know, singing jingle bells or showing different images on the cluster while we are driving in a, on a motorway. So I remember there were a lot of questions at that time, and it was not that many years ago. So we didn't really know. I mean, when, for example, when Mercedes developed the ZBR, the, the big, let's say, cockpit with two big displays, we were thinking about, okay, how should we cover the entire panel with what kind of information that should be useful to the driver and both the passenger? What control should we should we move there and what control should we leave uh, like on a physical buttons? And there was a lot of discussions. And now we are looking at different producers. For example, I know that Volvo nowadays is like developing like an in-house OS and would like to enhance also the Android capabilities in the vehicle. So you have a lot, a lot of capabilities that you would never think about. So the question is how you need to enhance now the environment or the mindset of the driver or the passenger in order to be able to cope with all these changes. It's like you have the predictive routing or routing based on the data collected multiple months or years, and you have the best routes to go to a specific destination. Then you have the new kind of assisted driving, like a ALKS, in which it somehow moves the power from the driver to the vehicle, but somehow also allows the driver to, let's say, take back the control in the vehicle. And it's a very fast, responsive system. So there are a lot of things like the 3D map. So I would say that regarding the question, there were huge, huge, huge changes in the HMI and in-car connectivity since now there are multiple startups that are thinking of developing like a uh, car-ish mobile office. 
So having your car converted into mobile office, maybe on a platform like a Volkswagen Transporter T2 platform, something like that, with more enhanced details and, of course, really, really high-end in-car connectivity. But things are moving faster than it was expecting expected a few years ago. And that can only make me like really happy. But in the same time, we also need to have a look on the bigger picture and understand the limitations because we might feel the need of having more, developing more on the car side and on the technology side, IoT, uh, cybersecurity, of course. It's a lot of cybersecurity involved here. Is like, are the current engineers prepared to understand all the all the risks in this area? Also, how the cities have to be redesigned, how the people mindset have to change in order to keep the pace with this like extremely, extremely rapid development. Right. And one of the things with, with that rapid development, you're obviously going to be able to uncover a lot more features that, you know, used to not be possible, but they're now possible. And this is a, a big concern for, I think, a lot of our clients and a lot of other companies out there that the unforeseeable risk that involved with trying to take as many features as possible and getting ahead of themselves without first being okay. The biggest benefit of creating this seamless HMI is it's simplifying our entire build process. Now, we have a lot less product that we have to concentrate on, but now it puts a lot higher emphasis on how do we create that foundational HMI that will last through the time. And so what are the core things that we're trying to achieve and what is that path along the way? And do we phase in features? How do we how do we build kind of that brand and the way that we should to where when we do release something, it's very efficient and it's future-proofed. So it has a long-lasting effect to it. And so I think what's fascinating about that is a lot of at influence is coming from the out-of-car experience. So it's, okay, I want my car to, to be able to predict my day. And all the HMI is now becoming is more of a conduit between I'm at home and I'm over here. It's kind of a thing that's in the way. So how do you make it not in the way of point A to point B mm -hmm. without jamming it full of features just because you can? Yeah, and that's also really important to understand if too many features or too many things that happen at the same time might help the driver might distract the driver or might overwhelm the driver because you know how many categories of people are out there. You know that a thing uh, like a pen can be understood in a hundred different ways by 50 different people. So you also need to check if people can really cope with too many things happening at the same time, also regarding in-car connectivity. You have a 3D map while you are trying to have a conference, while you are also searching for the latest software or firmware updates, it's like it really has to go in a, let's say in a very well-defined cyclic manner and the steps that need to take to be taken, let's say to the next level, should be really well calculated, also taking care of these things I was talking about here. I think one of the things that's going to happen just within the design community itself is there's be a, a lot more emphasis on that 
very early service design aspect of, you know, what channels do we really need to select as we go through, but high emphasis as we keep building upon the user, user-centered approach to it. But what's going to happen, though, is once we do figure out all those deltas and all those channels of how we want to build these stories and personas, it's going to be interesting how we build out the interaction design and that interaction design working with development where you have those micro interactions. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're in nav, you get a call coming in. How does the machine then respond to you without you having to do any inputs? And so that's, I think, is going to be the biggest challenge moving forward of how do we take these these tiny little things that make a whole difference in that vehicle experience. Now, I think as we move forward, that's going to help alleviate how do we blend the new feature ideas with the core ecosystem and how do you create that holistic and seamless experience? Yeah, and, and also there is another interesting thing thing here. I know that there are different companies that are developing some, uh, let's say, low power, but really high performance AI chips or stuff like interior cameras or different, let's say, components that would evaluate the nature of evaluate the status of the driver. So would the next generation HMI or the actual generation HMI be able to respond or be able to be triggered or be able to, let's say, adapt to different driver-related situation or moods? Would this be like a, a safety feature that needs to be taken into consideration based on the inputs provided by different AI software or some interior cameras or different components that would evaluate the status or the, let's say, the mood of the driver? And should this input be important for HMI overall, let's say, environment on the way it it reflects, let's say, its capabilities? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, and we've done some in, in, internal conversations related kind of to the evolution of what safety is. And there's a lot of things that are happening when you, we talk about AI assistant and co-pilot assistant and companion app assistant is you're now kind of getting into, and because of COVID, everyone got a lot more health conscious. And it's almost as if a lot of these companion apps and these co-pilots will be kind of like a health monitor as well as looking at your mental health between travel points, being able to kind of help you in the safety aspect of manual versus autonomous driving. And so it's almost becoming this more of an assistance of all the areas that instead of having to do the manual thought process yourself, it's kind of there to to assist your well-being and health. Whether that's, you know, simply listen to music, uh, navigation, your blood pressure, your ability to... Heart rate, yeah. Yeah, all that. And so we can start to then peel apart the onion and it starts going in a whole lot of different directions. And it's, I think the, the future of the vehicle is going to be very impacting because in the United States, most Americans, when they drive from home to work, they're spending a ton of time in their vehicles. I remember I worked probably 45 minutes west of Dallas. That meant I spent nearly two hours inside of a vehicle every day. And so that's a 
you're living a good portion of your life inside that vehicle. So I remember just driving and sitting in traffic. If we can't alleviate traffic, it's what does that health and that mental health look like for you? So when you get home, you're clear headed. It's almost like you could have a therapist in your car on the way home. So when you get home, your spouse or partner, you're ready to open up to them and you're able to have that filter. <laughs> I mean, I'm, so, <laughs> I know that Tom said, hey, what's high level HMI? And you and I have just now nosedived into it. So now we shared like a lot of the high level, like crazy stuff that's going to happen in the future. I love the idea of having a therapist um, on the way back from work. But I would, Dennis, at the start, you mentioned these risks that maybe we could dig into a little bit more. So Yes, all this amazing stuff is going to happen, but what are the bad things that could happen on the journey that we should look to mitigate? For example, cybersecurity, as you were saying. So I'd like to dig into those a little bit more if possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that it's quite a list here of potential risks, but I would have a look on, let's say, big categories like people mentality, city safety, pedestrian mindset, maybe, and city redesign. I would use these four big, let's say, categories to understand the risks. I mean, I am now more focused on mindset is European, let's say. And I know the issues we are facing in Europe. And I really understand the issues and the risks that we are facing in the eastern part of the Europe of Europe. So you would encounter like carriages on the road in different countries here. You would encounter thousands of pedestrians crossing the streets where there is no crossing available, like illegally crossing them, you would encounter boars and bears jumping in front of your car. If you would encounter people, like if you have a uh, stop sign, they would either spray it or cover it or turning it on the other, facing the other, the other way around. So these are one kind of risks. Then you would have the, the mentality of the driver. If let's say the regulations are not that clear in your country of they are very soft with the drivers. There are many crazy people driving around with high speeds, overtaking in illegal areas, not stopping when a pedestrian is crossing, not stopping when a train is passing by. So I would say that first of all, because the technology is like, let's say flawless, if it's well tested and well implemented, but where we do need to think more if we are talking about changing from manual to autonomous driving is on the people mentality and city safety and also extremely important city redesign you need in order to have a majority of autonomous driving vehicles or having a good autonomous uh, driving environment or capabilities you need to completely redesign your city you need to take care from potholes to lights to crossing to all kinds of stuff that you need to take care of. So the risks are here. Besides the cybersecurity risks, I'm taking the technology apart. I'm splitting the technology-related risks and non-technology-related risks. So on the non-technology-related risks, I would say that there are so many that I'm not yet sure that we are really, really able to face them completely. It's like on the technology, from the technology point of view, the cybersecurity area is like really exotic topic right now. Everybody wants to know a lot about it. Everybody wants to be a cybersecurity engineer. Everybody would like to know how to authenticate in a specific ECU and have the guidelines and perform the testing or 
access the in-car connectivity via the, let's say, clutch pedal ECU. So there are a lot of exotic things. Everybody's, we are also now doing some tests on, on the security, cybersecurity level in our company. And we are trying some really, really interesting perspectives. But we also need to take in consideration the risks that are, let's say, are not directly connected to technology. And from my perspective, these are the biggest risks. We had an example in a company that I worked in with an autonomous driving car. There was a roundabout built on the road and the car was not updated about it. And it was a brand new Mercedes E-Class and it jumped over the, the roundabout. So this happened. The news were covering it. It was a big fuss. A lot of money was were, were lost. But to this experiment, we understood that we are not yet ready to face the risks that are independent to our component and car development. So I would focus here a bit more than the media does, or a bit more than, let's say, automotive suppliers or OEMs do. I would say that we can we can discuss a bit more about this entire concept being involved, not only a specific component. So the entire environment having having the entire environment in focus. Yeah. I mean, I'm not so much of an expert, I would say, in the infrastructure field, but from what I see as the impact coming from it is you can't concentrate on just one Mm -hmm. component in that ecosystem to be the hero of that ecosystem. Yep. And so what we're seeing a lot and a lot of companies are doing is you're to build a network, it's going to take a lot of different artifacts working together cohesively in order to achieve that. So let's say, like you're saying, a jaywalker running across the, across the street, is it that his phone or that person's phone is connected to a network that the vehicle is also talking to that network? So it detects there's an incoming human being coming to the picture. I don't know. So it's something like that, or even it's, you know, without the vehicle having to rely on its cameras to be the independent factor uh, happening there. Another another interesting one that uh, I've seen is, you know, the peer-to-peer communication. So vehicles speaking to each other and understanding, you know, traffic avoidance from way, way ahead versus relying on Google Maps on uh, telling the vehicle, hey, there's a, a traffic collision way up ahead. It's it's more of like vehicle-to-vehicle on top of the redundancy of communicating with maps. So it's how do you create this more woven infrastructure of multiple things speaking to each other all at once without any security breaches? (laughs) Yeah, but that's another challenge here because if we are talking about Eastern European countries and for example, Romania, where, where I live and where I was born, I mean, the how do you call it, the auto park or something like that, which let's say it's like a statistic about the the age of the average age of the vehicles in a specific country. In Romania is 16.5 year, years of age, let's say the, the average age of all cars registered in Romania. So how this in-between car connectivity would work in the near future in such an old let's say, auto park, how we call it. And as I said, we have carriages on the road that have no lights and people driving them have no phones or they have like old Nokias. I would say that 
the challenge here is to understand how to cope with these situations. When you do not have any IoT involved, it's just your car that it's like 50 years smarter than all the cars around. And you as a driver having a fresh, open-minded mindset that all the people around you do not have it. So that's the challenge because, yeah, in, in an ideal world where we are all driving autonomous vehicles, that would be maybe, yeah, that would be easy to think about it. That's a bit utopic. But in the realistic situation, I, I'm afraid to... <laughs> you brought up a great point. A vehicle that's 16, 20, maybe even 30 years old and being able to future-proof that tech for many generations of ownership through that one vehicle. And it's kind of a, a teeter-totter or seesaw. Do you invest that future-proofing into newer vehicles so when they do get used down the line that they're going to be much more able to immersify themselves into the, the next generation of users? And or how do you modify an analog system <laughs> and artifact to communicate with that newer network and ecosystem. So there's kind of these two different paradigms. Do you have thoughts on like how those two could weave into each other or, mm -hmm. you know, what might be blocking that from happening? Yeah, maybe like a passive beacon to be added to, to old vehicles that would just, let's say, respond or send a feedback to a way smarter vehicle. But there might be some solutions. There might be some solutions, yeah. Awesome, guys. Well, I feel like we have done a very good job of showing both the blue sky, crazy, but not too distant future that we can expect from these technological advances in the world of automotive and mobility. And then also detailing the risks and the things that could potentially go wrong that we need to look out for. I want to close out the discussion by asking each of you, what is the positive impact that you think these advances in technology in the world of automotive are going to have on the world as a whole. And I know there are many, so it'll be interesting to see if we can find some maybe unexpected or slightly different positive impacts. And Ross, we'll start with you. Yeah. So, I mean, take the influence of EVs. It's always, you know, it's kind of a controversial subject as they've have started off inefficient, have become more efficient over time. And what we can look at that is inherently the cost of building those is, is quite high, which has forced those EVs to simplify their ecosystem. And that's through, you know, a series of sim more simplified physical design and requiring a more simplified digital design. And that, you know, at the same time to run those more efficiently is having one type of chipset times five versus having all these different types of chipsets would overcomplicate the brain of a, of a vehicle that you would primarily see in a fossil fuel burning vehicle. But what that has done of all that influence to the traditional fossil fuel burning vehicles, not just vehicles, but we're looking at all other mobility. Trains are now changing. Airplanes are now adapting to the influence of EVs. And so when I say adapting, it's all these different areas are starting to also simplify their approach, process, and design and giving that higher focus towards the user. Because when you step into a Tesla or you step into a Lucid or any of these newer vehicles is 
there's a lot less emphasis on physicality and there's a lot more emphasis on the UX because inherently that's what now they've invested in because you can't produce so much of the physical aspect of the vehicle as you would traditionally do. And so now you're seeing it just spread like a wildfire throughout a lot of different areas. And, you know, a lot of different areas are now asking, well, what was your approach to this? How did you get to this? And there's a lot of also influence from the from mobile devices, but a lot of it is user-centered design. So now big architectural firms are now hiring UX designers to better understand how they immersify their environments. And that's starting from a just delving into personas and this and that. And it always leads to a more efficient system, whether that is digital or even analog. And so that's what I'm seeing evolving as a kind of holistic impact. Mm -hmm. You said something really interesting and it popped an idea in my head that in a such vehicle, you know that the automotive industry was mainly focused on embedded software and developing like on-chip software and flashing the, the controller and so on. But now with this kind of technologies, you can like bring together to develop a car or to develop a, an entire HMI system. You can bring together the automotive embedded developers and the mobile app or web developers in order to develop an end product. So you would mix, uh, let's say, the car needs or the car features that are, let's say, mandatory due to NCAP testing or other country regulations together with UX designers or mobile app developers with experience in UX-related applications. So that's a good thing that it's like a joint venture between different technologies and different developers mindsets because there are different mindsets in automotive industry and let's say mobile app development. You're also seeing that with Unreal and Unity now being kind of this new domain of you can build in it and then you run it in it. And so you have just that, it being from the same uh, foundation and home, it's going to run be a much more fluid experience. And so that's... Yeah, it's like Unity and here are developing some uh, real-time 3D engine for vehicles. So yeah, it's like building on Unity, considering automotive application is quite ideal. All right, guys. Amazing job. I think that, as I mentioned, you, you took us on a roller coaster of the, <laughs> of the benefits, but also the risk of this world and some nice uplifting uh, expectations from the future at the end. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, like you said, there's, I think the risks are pretty obvious from the industry. There's valid concerns from, you know, customers and users. But, you know, it's always been like this in this industry, no matter what. And, but just the influences and the inputs are just slightly changing along the way. But, I mean, the advancements that are happening are pretty, pretty significant. And it's just, you know, it's part of change. And you talked about, are people ready for EVs to uh, come to the world? And it's machine takeover versus independence. And it's all that stems from is change. And so over time, I think we'll figure it out and users will get a lot more adapted and evolve. And so, yeah, that's my large takeaway from it. Yeah, I would also have here a few points to add and let's say 
conclude with, I would, let's say, focus on two aspects. One of them would be related to, let's say, the politics. People are getting mixed feelings because we are now trying to move on a, uh, let's say, low emission vehicles, trying to develop the electrification and autonomous driving area as much as possible. And when we are talking autonomous driving, we are talking electrification by default. But in the same time, could be things like examples like in Germany, where they fire up coal mines again in order to save the natural gas. gas. So people are thinking, okay, we are pushing it on one side, but on the other side, we still feel the need for let's say, coal mining again. So here, there is another thing that we need to think about, about the, let's say, the public marketing or the public information you bring in order to make people understand the need of an autonomous driving vehicle and an electric vehicle altogether. And on the other side, uh, <laughs> there are some funny, funny benefits I find from having a uh, autonomous driving concept or vehicle. It's like, road rage. There would be no more road rage, which would be pretty cool. I think if something bad happens, you can put it on the car and you can let the cars fight. I mean, you can reduce the road rage, which is a problem. Leaving the joke aside, road rage is a problem that can be solved considering the autonomous driving. And also another question that would be maybe I would like to pass it towards the next speakers for the next podcast what will the police do in this situation? How the police will be enhanced? How they will change their procedures? What will they have to do if there will be a country with, let's say, 60-65% of cars being autonomous? There are a few questions that come to my mind whenever I'm thinking of this. Also, replacing the windscreen with, a, uh, how do you call it? Yeah, yeah cinematic. Exp- I was missing the word. It's like, will this change the perception over the reality for a human being? If you are driving in uh, Bucharest, Romania, and you feel like you are driving in Taiwan and watching uh, Taiwan traffic, will this change the perception over the reality also when you are outside of the vehicle? If the reality is different, will a different reality allow you to accurately assess the environment in order to take the best decisions when needed. So I would leave these questions for the next speakers, but there there are a few questions that always come to my mind when I'm thinking about autonomous driving in my context where I live in, and also in an ideal world that I'm trying to program in my mind that I'm not really sure that it's realistic, but at least it's there. (laughs) I think a future state topic could be in, in the world of perfect and fully autonomous, what is a car at that point? Do you need structural safety features anymore? What does the exterior look like? Is it a totally immersive interior? Does it become a rolling piece of sculpture? So there's a lot of different topics kind of kind of there. And that's like like Blade Runner type of future state <laughs> conversation. But I've really enjoyed this conversation, especially yeah, the fact too. that, you know, we can talk about the blue sky state all day long, but I really love diving into, you know, how do you mitigate the real world stuff and all the risk and all, all of it holistically. Sorry, we hijacked the back end of, of the uh, podcast, but it's been it's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I loved it, actually. Looking forward to hearing from you again. So Ross and Dennis, I want to thank you for joining us and thank you for helping us illuminate the future of the human machine interface and in-car connectivity. 
And there we have it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Ross. And of course, thank you to Dennis. I feel like we gave a very good overview of what's going to be happening with the world of the human machine interface and in-car connectivity as these technological trends converge on the automotive industry. And I think we will have to come back and record another episode where we try to answer the question, what even is a car in the future when everything is fully autonomous and electrified? And of course, if you'd like to learn more about this topic, more about the human machine interface in cars and how autonomous driving, electrification, etc., are impacting the future of this interface, then simply just send an email to automotive at star.global. That's automotive at star.global and we'll send you our trend report on the topic. So as ever, if you have any feedback for the show, then please head to Apple Podcasts, search for Shine and leave an honest rating and review. And as ever, thank you so much for listening.